I just want you, give, you guys to give yourself a round of applause because you came to church on the hardest Sunday of the whole year. Give it up, right? Amen. You did it. Go ahead and you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. And you could be there just for a little while. But I'm on the outreach commission with the West Virginia Baptist convention, the executive board, and I was able to teach a session in the School of Christian Studies a few weeks ago, and as I was talking to them, I realized the things I was talking to them about is probably something we needed to talk about, and uh, the title today is Cultural Christianity, Uh, and and I think you'll uh, understand what I'm talking about here in just a little while, but this morning I'd like to share something with you that has really challenged me as a pastor. I've been in the ministry for 14 years. I've served in four different churches, both in the north and in the south. And the one thing that's become abundantly clear is that the word Christian has a lot of confusion surrounding it. What does a Christian look like? How does one become a Christian? What does a Christian act like? Uh, What, with a country that's so rich in Christian imagery that's woven into our culture, what does this word Christian even mean anymore? And then you add that in the, you know, the confusion surrounding politics, who are Christians supposed to vote for, and what does it mean, and all, and all these different things that, uh, these burdens that hang on this word Christian. It's so hard to think about how we can share our Christian faith when we realize that the word Christian means so many different things for different people. And this is the very first problem that we encounter when we are sharing the gospel. And before we go on, let's just give a short definition of what the gospel is. The one I like, because it's easy to remember and it's short, is Jesus in my place. I deserved hell, Jesus took my punishment, and I put my faith and trust in him. Jesus took my place. And the gospel is what we have to center our churches on. We have to make our church all about the gospel and center our lives around this, that Jesus is in my place. He took my punishment and he gifted me his righteousness. Recently, I've read uh, several different books that have really stretched my outlook on the American church, and they've caused me to inspect my own heart and my own ministry and my own purpose. And one of such books is titled Unsaved Christian by Dave and Sarah, which that title there is an oxymoron, unsaved Christian, but it emphasizes the problem and the contradictions that are in our country today. And the author builds on this statement, that America is the land of the overchurched and the underreached. America is the land of the overchurched and the underreached. The gospel, though, is the remedy for this. When the gospel is at the very top of our priorities, the one thing that sticks out over everything else, and it's louder than anything else, then it divides the wheat from the chaff. The gospel shows us that God makes demands meets them in Christ, and then calls people to trust in and follow Him. So my purpose today is to present you with the possibility that people you know that go to church may be a great mission field 
ripe for the harvest for sharing our faith. And when our churches reflect the biblical definition of what it means to be a Jesus follower, then we will find that people are drawn to what we have. Sinclair Ferguson says this, he says, thinking that I deserve heaven is a sure sign that I have no understanding of the gospel. I've been a part of three churches in the Deep South, both in the states of Georgia and Arkansas. Church is foundational there as cornbread and sweet tea. It's part of the culture. People are raised on Saturday fish fries at the church, vacation Bible school, Sunday dinners at grandma's house after church. And it's few and far between that you will find someone that says, I am not a Christian. In my seven years in Georgia, I quickly realized that before you can accept Christ, you have to understand your need for Christ, or in other words, you have to get people lost before they can be saved. Dave and Sarah says cultural Christianity is actually a religion in and of itself. The people that are, uh, practice cultural Christianity are not atheistic or they're not agnostic. In fact, cultural Christians would be offended if you described them that way. These people are not opposed to Christian belief. They believe in God. They take seriously their Christian values and traditions. They take seriously prayer in schools and nativity scenes and Linus reciting the birth of Jesus Christ in Charlie Brown Christmas. But what's wrong with being a monotheist that loves Charlie Brown and believes that Jesus was born in a manger? What's wrong with that? Well, there's nothing wrong with that as long as it leads to real and genuine faith and practice and belief in Jesus. See, nothing's wrong with it, but the difficulty comes when we examine exactly who their God is and question with them why the coming of Jesus even matters. See, cultural Christians admire Jesus, but they don't really think he's needed in their everyday life until they need him to take the wheel in, during a time of crisis. The Jesus of cultural Christianity is a type of historical imaginary friend with some magic powers for good luck and sentimentality. Amazing Grace is a song known from memory, but why that grace is amazing cannot be explained. See, the God of cultural Christianity is the big man upstairs. And whether or not he is holy and people have sinned against him is irrelevant. And we see words like hope and faith and love and believe hang on people's walls as decoration. But the actual words of God only come out when Psalms 23 is read at a loved one's funeral. This is cultural Christianity. It's well documented that there is a rise in the non-religious in our country. But there's reason to believe that this is actually a refinement process and not a sign of bleeding in the actual church and the Christian demographic. It's with people with only nominal belief that are falling away. According to a study by American Adults by the Pew Research Center, 80% of those polls answered that they believed in God, but only 56% believed in the God as described by the Bible. That's a huge difference, especially when you understand how many of those people actually believe 
the words of Jesus Christ and, and so much deeper. Just believing in God is not enough even. The Bible tells us that even the demons believe in God and they trust in God and they know who he is. With 70% of the U.S. identifying as Christian, we already see that there is a huge mission field right under our nose that we might otherwise overlook. People that say they are believers and they would describe themselves that way, but not actually in the God of the Bible. In a culture that does not like absolutes, Jesus stands in stark difference. Matthew 12, 30 says, whoever Jesus says here, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. That doesn't make sense to us. We like to believe that everybody's opinion is valid, and everybody's way has merit, and there's something to it. And Jesus here stands and says, whoever is not with me is against me. And it's seen as such a villainous thing that Darth Vader is quoted as saying those very same words. Why? Because it's absolute. It's black and white. And that feels weird to us because everybody has liberty and everybody has freedom of their own opinions. But that does not mean that everybody's opinion is valid. There is such a thing as truth. Our job as Christian uh, and, and Jesus followers is to make the gospel so clear that it is impossible to be on the fence. And you may not make friends trying to convince cultural Christians that they may not actually be Christians at all, but you might just see lives changed and made new. We as churches in America cannot continue to coddle those that are religious but not redeemed. We should endeavor to be uh, offensive, but the gospel by its nature is an offense to those that believe that they are righteous. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. They think it's silly, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul had to come out and say, hey, I'm not ashamed of the gospel that I've been given. I'm not ashamed to give it, this message that I have. And some may not like it, but it's where the power of God lies, in the redeeming work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in Luke 5.32 that he came to save sinners, not the righteous. And anyone that has a problem admitting their sin sickness is going to miss the gospel. You may hear people say things like, I don't need forgiveness. That's a error. That's not true. What would I have any regrets for? The fact that you've sinned, that's where you would have your regrets. But that's a problem. If you think that you deserve heaven, that's a clear understanding that you do not have the gospel. We cannot edit or censor the gospel in our churches because when we dilute it, it becomes another gospel altogether. We see Jesus' most clear rebuke of cultural Christianity in Matthew 7, 21. And you can look there in your Bible now. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, And do many mighty works in your name? 
And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Dave and Sarah here says that Jesus wasn't speaking about atheists. He wasn't speaking about agnostics, pluralists, secular humanists. That's not who he was talking to in these verses. He here was describing moral and religious people doing good and religious acts in the name of God. These were the Tom Brady's of religious observance. They had a collection of lanyards from conferences that would make any worship leader jealous. Religion was deeply embedded into the routine of their life, which gave them full confidence that their acts of righteousness built an impressive resume, setting them up for a big payoff in heaven. See, the old adage that it's not what you know, but who you know, rings true for these religious all-stars and their impressive accomplishments. They might have known religion, but they did not know the Redeemer that was standing right in front of them. Therefore, what they knew really didn't matter that much. But let's look at these verses again and translate it into a modern context. Lord, didn't we say grace before we ate our dinner? Didn't we vote our values? Didn't we believe that prayer should be in school? Didn't we go to church? Didn't we believe in God? Didn't we give money to the church? Didn't we dedicate our babies to the Lord? Didn't we want America to return to its Christian roots? Didn't we stay married and remain faithful? These are all great examples of self-righteousness. Because self-righteousness believes that you are good enough, or you can be if you try hard enough. However, there is only one mediator between God and man, and it's the man Christ Jesus, not our good works. So it's not about didn't we, it's about didn't he. So as a pastor of a congregation that I care about, this scares me a little bit. Am I making it clear enough that although behavior is important, there is no saving grace in it? I never want anyone to come through these doors and then get to the other side and say, God, didn't I do this and didn't I do that and didn't I do this? And he look at them and say, depart from me, I never knew you. Am I challenging people to try harder or am I challenging them to surrender and, and lean completely on Jesus Christ, realizing that just like I had no power to save myself, I have no power to sanctify myself and I've got to lean on him every day just like I leaned on him the day that I accepted him as my savior. J.D. Greer says that the gospel is not the diving board into Christianity, it's the pool. It's not a step, it's a whole staircase. It's not the ABCs, it's the A through Z. We never get past the cross. Every day we lean on it. You don't graduate from the good news of the gospel. You drive your heart deeper into it. Because the gospel is not a club like the Boy Scouts that teaches you how to be prepared and gives you merit badges as you progress. The gospel is this, that you and everything you are being dead and Christ living through you. These thoughts have motivated me to have a real urgency when I preach to those in our services as churches and those churched people that are living down the street. 
who are comfortable with Christian lingo, but they have no real understanding of the truth. See, our culture is fighting against this clarity that we ought to seek as Jesus followers. Politicians use vague references to God, and people may get goosebumps singing God Bless America at a baseball game. But the God that they are singing to is more a national mascot than a God that demands our faith and repentance and changes us and makes us new. And we as the church must awaken to the fact that cultural Christianity is a false gospel with eternal consequences. We can't lean on heritage and tradition and ritual and religion because those things can be idols if we're not careful. Idols that distract us from the true worship of our God and the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Not only do we need to be clear in our church building, but also while we're out in mission. We must not just understand the church and understand the truth as a church, but we must be able to articulate the gospel and cut through cultural Christianity when we're out in the community as well. You should ask yourself that. Can I articulate what Jesus has done for me? And you say, Pastor Phil, I'm not a theologian. I'm not this and that. But if you dwell on it and you think about it and you remember what Christ has done for you often, won't that just be on the tip of your tongue? Won't you just be ready to share what Christ did for you? We've got to awaken to this fact that there's people that may say that they're Christians that don't actually have the truth. Just like there are people that are in the church but not of the church. But see, it's easier and less threatening to our comfort to just believe that everyone has a genuine understanding of the gospel. That's easier for us to think about. I don't want to think about the fact that my neighbor might not have a relationship with God and might end up in a place called hell. That's uncomfortable for me. I don't want to think about that. But the proof forces us to admit that that's not the case. Now, there are other types of unsaved Christians as well, not just cultural Christians. The Bible tells us that there are wolves in sheep's clothing in Matthew 7, 15. There are people that it will come into our presence, they'll come into our church, and they'll try to manipulate and guide people astray for their own personal benefit. Not everyone that joins the church might be on the same page. They had that problem in the beginning, and we still have that problem now. Romans 16 says these wolves in sheep clothing will create division and deceive people with flattery. They appease people by departing from sound doctrine. They take people captive through bad theology, it tells us in Colossians 2.8. Matthew 24.24 says they seem to have spiritual power and authority, but it's a deception. you got these wolves in sheep's clothing. There's another type of uh, unsaved Christian, and that's the hypocrite. This is a person that wears a mask of Christianity in order to be seen and admired by others. And how you can tell they're there is they get very upset when they don't get the credit for the things that they did. Because that tells you the motives that they had behind it. Well, no one noticed this. No one noticed that. Well, who are you doing it for? The God that knows or the people around you that don't notice? This hypocrite, they're a person that wears a mask to be seen of others, and they have no actual desire to do things for God and to worship God. Matthew 6, 5 shows us a picture of that. 
It says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and at the street corner that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. This person is all exterior, and often they put on an act of public virtue to hide and cover up a private vice. The false prophets in sheep clothing deceives people with a false gospel, but the hypocrite deceives people with pride and appearance. So what am I saying? I'm saying we've got some challenges as a church to fight against. There's people that say that they're Christians that represent something very different than what God's word represents. You've got cultural Christians that just, they were born a Christian in their mind, and because they're grandparent and because their friends are Christians, they've automatically uh, taken part in that by osmosis. You've got wolves in sheep clothing that have hidden agendas to manipulate things, to, to turn things in their own, uh, for their own benefit. And then you've got hypocrites that just want to puff themselves up and look good for people. It's very important for us to let the gospel cut through all of these distractions. Remembering what Tim Keller says, that the gospel is this, that we are more flawed and sinful in ourselves than we ever dare believe. We're worse than we even think we are. Yet, at the very same time, we're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. In the American church, is a place that acts and expects very little from its church members. And because of this, it's easy for unrepentant people to get involved and sway the focus of the church. But we must get back to a place where those that don't know Christ in our churches will either repent and accept Christ or decide that this church isn't for them. We must wear as a badge of honor when we hear things like, all they ever do is talk about Jesus. We must decide as churches to put Jesus over our culture, put him over our preferences, put him over our traditions, lift him over our politics and our opinions. Nothing should be louder in our churches than Jesus saves. He rescued me. He stands at the door of your heart and he knocks. He loves you and accepts you and wants you to come to him. Turn from everything else that you're holding on to and run to Jesus. When people think about Clarksburg Baptist Church, that should be the first thing they think about, is that this is a place where we believe that Jesus still has power and he still has the victory and he still can save the people farthest away from him. And to the redeemed, we must say, you cannot live on your own. You haven't made it. You've not gotten to a place where you have to stop repenting and stop asking for forgiveness and stop giving your life back over to Christ. You cannot walk on your own. You were made to walk in relationship with Jesus Christ. And there's nothing that you can ever do to make him love you anymore. And there's nothing that you have done to make him love you any less. Just follow Jesus. Because the gospel still has power. It's not in our presentation, it's not in our passion, it's not in our eloquence or clever stories. The power of our message is in the person of Jesus. And there's hope, even though we face these challenges. There's hope, because we, when we make the gospel the hub of the wheel, in the very center of everything we do, 
and everything else is just a spoke on that wheel, and our whole church revolves around it and points to that foundation. When we do that, God will bless us. He tells us that in John 15, 1. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. And he says this, he says, abide, we've got to remember this as a church, abide in me, he says, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Remember the order here. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is it that bears much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches that are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and will be done for you. By this is my Father is glorified, that you may bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Here he tells us that healthy things bear fruit. And if we are attached to the vine in the right way, we're going to bear fruit. What does fruit mean? It means things that are not natural for you as a person like love and forgiveness and peace in the midst of the storm. You need to be able to look at your life and say, am I bearing fruit? Is there something that I'm doing in my life that is supernatural and I only do because I'm leaning on Jesus Christ? See, Martin Luther says that uh, we are saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. Our works don't save us, but they are proof of our salvation. We must challenge ourselves and fellow churchgoers to ask themselves that question. Is the Holy Spirit bearing fruit in our lives? Because the proof that you're saved and redeemed is not just in the past. The proof is what are you trusting in right now? And what is the Holy Spirit producing in your life right now? Because genuine faith is faith that endures. America is the land of the overchurched and the underreached. We have a great mission field right under our noses of people that call themselves, call themselves believers but don't trust in the God of the Bible. We have to make sure that our church is all about the saving faith that is found in Jesus Christ and Christ alone, above all else. We've got to be clear. We've got to be focused. We've got to be bold. Because there is hope when we just unleash this message of the gospel. My point is this, that we're seeing today that we have to cut through the cultural Christianity to make it undeniably clear that the gospel, Jesus in my place, is what everything must flow out of and, and, and be empowered by. And the redeemed in our churches need to understand why we are here, not to coddle the Christian or maintain some type of special club that's holding on till Jesus comes back. We need to understand that the gospel and the great commission that we've been given is above all. 
The gospel must be front and center and bigger than our beliefs about eschatology in the end times, although those things are important. Our gospel has got to be bigger than our beliefs about election, although those things are important. The gospel has to be above everything and as clear as day so that we might confront people that are coasting by on cultural Christianity. Recently, we had been looking at... uh, many different resumes of pastors that were, uh, you know, applying for some of the jobs that we have available here. And one of the questions that we asked on our questionnaire was this, how does one come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior? And it was very disheartening to see these people that have gone to Bible college and have experience working in the ministry, unable to articulate the very simple words of the gospel. That, to me, shows me that we are very distracted about what is important. We've got to make sure that as a church, we're very clear about what is the most important thing and where this whole thing starts. And we need to look at every aspect of our church and ask the question, how does this thing that I care about further the gospel or paint a clearer picture of the gospel to my community? Now, does that mean we never hand out a bottle of water unless we're able to recite the ABCs of salvation? No, but it means that we remember and constantly uh, uh, force ourselves to understand that everything we do and every good work flows out of our love for Christ and paints that clearer picture for those around us. It means we constantly keep that on our heart. Because the people in the pews in our city are confused about what is the most important priority. Society is definitely confused about the purpose of the church. They don't understand why we're here today. We have to make it painfully clear why we exist. To show the gospel to a desperate and a dying world. And we are plan A. There is no plan B. Jesus promised to build his church. He said that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church is not going away, but he promised to build his church on the rock of the gospel. We don't need a new strategy for sharing the gospel, although those things are fine. We don't need to water down the message. In fact, it's the very opposite. The church as a whole, we've got a branding problem in our country today. Why? Because we've got bad spokespeople out there trying to represent us and what we feel. And that's why we have to be painfully clear and lift the gospel above everything else so that the world can see it. So some in our pews that may be present but not redeemed can see it. Because I never want anyone to know, uh, to come through these doors and not understand the true gospel. Jesus in my place. I never want to know someone that gets there to that next life and God looks at them and says, depart from me, I never knew you. But God, didn't we do this and didn't we do that and didn't I have all these accomplishments and wasn't I a respected person in the church and respected person in the community and I helped with charity and I did all these, God, didn't I do this? Depart from me, I never knew you. We have big challenges to face in the church, but we have a big God. And the greatest and most powerful message of all, the most compelling message of all, when we uh, tell it with the passion that it deserves, 
We've got the good news of the gospel. We've got as a church to let it permeate everything we do and let everything flow out of it. Let's make it higher than ever before. There, your heads bowed and eyes closed. Band's going to come. I don't know about you, but this makes me uncomfortable, right? I don't like thinking about the fact that people that I know, that I like, that I care about, might be coasting by on cultural Christianity. That they're really Christian mostly because they're American. And our, our money says in God we trust and we sing about God when we sing our songs. We have to be clear about what it means to be a Christian because there's so many people fighting against that clarity. As we pray, let's ask God to bubble up to the surface anything that we hold dear that stands above the gospel. When we look at our life, when we look at our job, when we look at our family, when we look at our hobbies, do the things we do preach the gospel to other people? What do you mean? Does it flow out of? your love for Jesus Christ and the fact that he redeemed you? Does your family paint a clearer picture of the gospel? Do you worship through your work and your profession? Everything you do, you do it to excellence because you realize that you're not serving your boss, but you're serving your God. And you realize that you have to have character integrity. Why? Because not you represent a company, but because you represent a savior. Do the things that you do as hobbies, do they glorify God and paint a clearer picture? Or do they pull you away from God and distract you from him? We're in a desperate situation as a church, as Christians, an American church. People have forgotten what it means to be a Christian. Let's ask God to point these things out in our heart.